Well, good morning and welcome to Christ Church on this um, damp, wet, overcast day that sort of matches the mood of Cubs fans at the moment. Um, special welcome to those joining us from Crossroads, the 01 and Highland Park. So this is the, uh, the day before the 499th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, an event, a series of events that were set in motion when this relatively uh, obscure uh, German professor of theology, Roman Catholic uh, priest, teaching at a new sort of second-tier university in Wittenberg, Germany, nailed uh, a list of his frustrations with the church. Uh, he had no intention of setting in motion uh, a, a series of revolutions to politics and theology and the church and the arts and family and work and music. Uh, he, he thought that he was uh, sort of calling together a discussion among academics. He wrote his theses, he posted them in Latin for other scholars to read. But uh, someone took that list down, translated it into German, and took it to the printing press, which had just been invented, and copies of that were spread throughout Germany, and over the course of the next years, it led to this dramatic uh, series of transformations. And uh, we're, we're going to think about that uh, today because, um, because it's an important event. There's a few events where we can actually point to the, the exact moment when something happened that changed everything. We can do that uh, with the Protestant Reformation but we're doing it in part because over the course of the next year, as we approach the 500th anniversary uh, of this event, there are all kinds of books that are going to be rolling out. I'm sure Time Magazine and others are going to cover the, the Protestant Reformation. And so I'm just, I just wanted to help you understand this and do it all in the backdrop of Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 17, which is the, which is the event that, that, as you're going to see, sort of starts it all. But in order for you to understand exactly what happened and why it happened and sort of how it happened, you, you need to have a, a working knowledge of Western civilization. And as I, uh, at least my experience, my Western Civ class in high school was taught at 7 in the morning by the football coach. And uh, the combination of those two things, he, had, he was not hired to teach Western Civ. He was hired to coach football. So uh, a lot of this was lost on me, um, but... But as I was trying to put together an understanding of sort of who I am and where I am and what the, what the current climate is, I found that I kept going back to try and understand. Because ideas and worldviews and, and cultures are all very trendy things. And, and we want one that is based on something that is going to hold. So, so I'm going to give you a quick flyover of Western civilization. I'm going to break it into to 10 periods. So what we talk about as being the West grows out of a division that actually happened in the Roman Empire. But the West starts uh, about 2,500 years ago with this combination, a little mix of uh, German, or excuse me, of Greek philosophers, I think Socrates and Plato and those who were elevating reason and logic, a mix of the Greek philosophers and Jewish law and prophets. So Moses and the Ten Commandments and, and Isaiah and Jeremiah and all that. This, 
This mix of these two led to a culture that was just dramatically better than everybody around them. And so um, eventually that is going to give birth to the Roman Empire. And the Greeks were the thinkers, they were the artists, they're the ones that give us architecture and philosophy and all of this. But the Romans were better uh, soldiers. So the Romans end up winning the battles, but they embrace and and sort of accept uh, Greek philosophy. So we've got this Greco-Roman world and it leads to the Roman Empire, which is going to exist in various forms for almost 800 years. And it starts, in one sense, just before Christ's birth. And the big Roman Empire is going to end just uh, at the beginning of the 5th century. And and what you need to know is that when when the Romans came into power, and there's a 200-year period, the Pax Romana, where there's there's, uh, peace for essentially the whole world because they're in charge of just about everything. Uh, When the Romans step up, everything goes to a new level. So they, they build roads and they promote trade across big barriers, across big distances. They set up libraries. They have philosophers. They've got a government that is working. They've got a, a big military. They, they, uh, they just do things. They've got, they've got engineers that, that orchestrate aqueducts that bring water for hundreds of miles into the city. They create sewers. It's just, it's a completely different level of life. And this goes on for quite some time. And then, as is often the case, those that have a lot grow a little soft. And so they decided they didn't really want to be soldiers anymore. So they outsourced the military to the barbarian tribes that were around them. So you know some of these names because we carry them forward, but the Goths and the Visigoths and the Vandals and the Huns, these were all, uh, they were not really taking part in the Roman Empire and sort of like the Rolling Stones, you know, contract with Hell's Angels to be security at their concerts, the Romans contracted with the barbarians to be their military. And then at some point people go, You know, maybe this wasn't such a good idea after all. We're now scared of security. So eventually, the, the, in Alaric the Han in the fourth century, four, excuse me, the fifth century, 403 BC, (laughs) 403 AD. In the fifth century, Alaric the Han, who is a barbarian, says, you know what, we can take Rome and leads the revolt. And so the barbarians go from being at the gates to, to, overthrowing Rome, the once holy, mighty uh, empire of Rome falls. And, and then we enter the third period, which uh, it's not politically correct anymore to call it the Dark Ages, but it's, that's probably how you've heard of it. It's the Dark Ages. So for about 150 years, everything collapses. The, nobody can keep the, the aqueducts running. Nobody can keep the sewers running. There's no need for libraries. Literacy plummets. Everything breaks down. There's no trade. There's just bands of people that are fighting against each other. And so civilization drops. And just to make it worse, the bubonic plague sort of rolls out through Europe and 100 million people die. Now, out of this, the, the church, in particular, sort of the, Benedict, the Benedictine monks who have gone out into the 
out into uh, the, 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 the woods. They've sort of, they've gone away from Rome. They had, they had established these enclaves of health and love and trade and trust and literacy. They were preserving all the great works. These become sort of islands of health and strength. And eventually the church launched by this, you, you, if you read Thomas Cahill's book uh, 10 years ago, How the Irish Saved Civilization, the church will reemerge. Lots of people come to faith and they lift Europe out of the dark ages and we enter a thousand year period that is known by the, the title the Middle Ages or sometimes referred to as Christendom. And most people know everything they know about the Middle Ages from Monty Python movies, which is perhaps not the most accurate uh, portrayal. A number of good things happened during the Middle Ages, but some bad things happened as well. In the absence of a government, there, is no, there, there are no nation states. You don't say you're German or you're French or you're British. There are no nation states. People identified themselves by the bishop who happened to be in charge of the area. So the church gains in power, and unfortunately at some point, uh, power corrupts and it corrupts the church. And uh, the, the church will do a number of things. This is when the Crusades happen and the Inquisition. And there's just a number of bad things that happen. And uh, in the, Luther will say in the 12th century, the church sort of jumps the tracks and starts to get a lot of things wrong. Well, so we enter the, it's the fifth of the sixth era. It's, it's the Renaissance. In the 14th century, there is a rebirth uh, it comes out of Italy, and there are, there are people that want to go back to the Greeks. They want to go, go back to the original sources. And so they start to study Greek, looking at the philosophers and other things. And this leads to the scientific revolution starts to happen. Lots of things begin to unfold. Sort of Europe is moving out of the Middle Ages and Christendom, and they're moving into a renaissance. Alongside of that, sort of the spiritual arm of the Renaissance is a movement founded uh, in part by Luther. We call it the Reformation. Now, there were lots of people who were trying to reform the church, including the Pope at this time. Uh, there were lots of Reformations. Luther's is the one uh, under God's providence that catches on. And Martin Luther, who had intended to be a lawyer uh, until he's caught in a lightning storm and uh, believes he's going to die, and calls out to God and says, if you save me, I will serve you. Uh, and he keeps that promise. Most people don't keep that promise, but he keeps that promise. And so he goes into uh, the ministry. He becomes a priest. He becomes a monk. And, uh, but he's a very troubled uh, priest and monk. He understands uh, that if he does the things he's supposed to do, so if he does penance and confession, if he, if he follows, if he takes all the sacraments, if he is very religious in his orientation, he understands that the promise is, is that he will become righteous. He will become good. What he recognizes is that that isn't happening. Okay? So he's very, he does not have a sense of peace with God. And he's very confused by this. He's very mad about this. And he is going to the extreme. So Luther will have confession sometimes three hours a day. And the other priests are going, Martin, come on, come on, come on. Just, just move on. Don't, don't. But Luther is just, he's just 
desperate to have a sense of peace with God, and he can't get it. So when he is transferred to Wittenberg to become a professor of theology, because of the Renaissance, he, among others, have studied Greek. So he goes back not to the Latin text that everybody was using at the time. He goes back to the Greek texts of the New Testament. And when he is reading in Romans, he has this eureka moment. So he is in Romans um, chapter 1, and it's, it's the passage beginning with verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation uh, to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. So when Luther has read this in Latin, the word for, for faith that is used here is uh, justificare. And, and in Latin, the, the suggestion is if you do the right thing, you will become righteous. You will become good. You will become holy. And when you become holy, God will be pleased. So when he reads it in Greek, he realizes that that's not what the Greek word means. And, and the Greek word says, right, that, that when we place our faith in God, God imputes to us, God declares that we are righteous. We get the, the righteousness of Christ transferred to our account. It's not that we are made holy in that moment. It's that when God looks at us, Right? He now sees the goodness of Christ in us. That is credited to our account. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, 21 is a critical passage. Right? It says that, uh, that, that God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to become sin on our behalf. That the righteousness of Christ will be transferred to our account. So when God looks at me, <laughs> he doesn't see my sin. He doesn't see the darkness of my heart. He doesn't see all of my greed, pride, lust, envy, anger. What he sees is, is the, the, the perfectness of Jesus. And Luther goes, well, wait a minute. This is completely different than what I had been taught to believe. This isn't that I'm going to be made perfect. This is that I'm going to be treated by God as if I'm perfect. So he takes off to start telling everybody, hey, I went back to the Greek, we got a mistranslation here. It means something different. Now, the, 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 the Reformation is sort of famously starts when Luther nails the 95 Theses to the door in Wittenberg, Germany. But, but what you have to understand is it's a many-layered thing. So he nails these 95 Theses uh, onto the door in part because he's furious that there are people within the church who are selling indulgences. And indulgences were sort of a get-out-of-jail, get-out-of-purgatory-free card that you could buy. Now, whenever I talk about this, I always want to say, we've got to keep it clear that there is a big difference between the Roman Catholic Church of today and the Roman Catholic Church of the Middle Ages. 
So everybody was trying to reform the church at this moment because everybody's going, we sort of got this wrong. But there were pockets that were really doing some really bad things. So one of the things that, that different popes had used to fund the church, to fund the crusades, were these indulgences. So you're worried that you're going to spend a few hundred years in purgatory? Well, for a certain donation, we can eliminate that. You're worried that your, your father or the baby that you had uh, is not in heaven? We can change that for a price. Now, this is... So, there was a guy by the name of Tetzel who was going around, and his little, his little jingle was, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Luther is livid. So he goes out to attack the practice of indulgences. And he nails these 95 theses, and it, it includes a number of things that he wants to see changed. Well, the whole issue behind the, the, the indulgences is how are we made right with God? Right? How do we enter into a right relationship with God? How do we get our sins forgiven? How do we gain eternal life? So that's, that is going to be one level of the debate that Luther is going to enter into. But fairly quickly, it changes to a different debate. And that is, who gets to decide? How do we determine what the right answer is? And Luther will argue, we, are gonna, we need to look at the Bible alone. And others will say, we need to look at the Bible through, they would, and the Roman Catholic Church even then would not say that you don't look at the Bible, although they didn't want people who were not trained. They didn't want anybody other than the priest to read the Bible. But they would say, you've got to look at this through the lens of the church, through the teaching, the additional teaching of the councils of the church, the popes, everything else, this whole set of traditions, the magisterium, that is how we're going to understand the Bible. And so that's what the debate becomes about. And this takes place over the course of of years because there, there weren't, you know, blogs and TV programs and, and what's happening instantly. So Luther would write something months later, there's a response to that. But there, there's a debate that, that comes out. Luther starts to defy some very specific charges by uh, the, the religious hierarchy. Eventually, he gets called uh, to account and he is told that he has to renounce the things that he's been writing. And that leads to a very famous moment, uh, and we're going to run a clip from the same movie that, that we were looking at, in which Luther is being told that he has to recant from the things that he's been writing and embrace the teachings more broadly of the church as opposed to his understanding of what the Bible is saying. So let's run this clip. Will you recant or will you not? Since your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer. Unless I am convinced by scripture and by plain reason 
and not by popes and councils who have so often contradicted themselves. My conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I cannot. And I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. So that's a little bit of Hollywood interjected into that. What Luther initially said when they asked him was, uh, can I have a day to think about it? And uh, then he came back the next day and very famously said, right, unless I am persuaded by Scripture or plain reasoning, uh, I cannot recant. Here I stand, so help me God. Uh, so one of the famous biographies of Luther is called Here I Stand. So he takes this platform. It's amazing that Luther lives as long as he does, but he does survive. And, and he, though he had never intended for this to happen, he will launch uh, a big division, a break in the church between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant, sort of the protesters uh, against the abuses in the church. And this will spill out in all kinds of ways. A- at the time, the only people that sang in church were the priests. And so now Luther gonna, is going to write songs. He's going to put lyrics to the German uh, songs that were being sung in the pubs uh, to try and communicate theology. Uh, the, he's going to elevate the family. Because if you were serious about loving God, you wouldn't get married And if you were serious about loving God, the only thing you could do is become a priest or or a a nun. And he's going to say, no, no, work matters. God is the Lord of everything. And the family is a blessing of God. So everything is going to begin to change uh, by Luther. Now, that is, as I said, the the sixth era of uh, Western civilization. We we could expand it because there's going to be a number of additional reformations. There's going to be a big counter-reformation by the Roman Catholic Church that will lead to the Council of Trent and the writings there. There's going to be additional reformations within the Protestant camp. There will be people that don't think Luther goes far enough. And so you're going to have the radical reformers, Zwingli and others, who are going to try and push it even farther, the Anabaptists. So it, it's a tumultuous period. It will, there will be a war, tragically, for 30 years uh, called the Thirty Years' War, and then there's a treaty. Uh, and then we, we sort of see Europe move into the next era, which is um, the Enlightenment or the Age of Reason. And this is where science is really going to start to be put up. God is dethroned. Man becomes the measure of all things. And, uh, and the belief is, is that with a, more time and education, right, we're going to see things get better, which leads into the next era uh, of of we call it uh, modernity. And so now we're entering into the 20th century. The end of the 19th century, uh, the beginning of the 20th century, if you go back and you read the things that were being written then, everybody said, heaven is coming to earth, right? We're all going to get along. Everything is going to be wonderful. With just a little bit more time and a little bit more science and technology, we're going to 
fix everything. We're all going to hold hands. We're going to sing songs. People are going to share. Everything is going to be perfect. And then we enter into World War I and World War II, and people start to say, yeah, apparently uh, we're not as good as we think. Apparently there's, there are things that science and technology are not going to be able to change, like the human heart. So we then begin to transition out of modernity into an era that we now refer to as post-modernity. And post-modernity is, is a, it can be a confusing thing to understand because it's basically saying we're not into modernity anymore and lots of people have different ideas about what post-modernity means. But, but that's where we're living today. We're living in this post-modern era. And, and part of what I want you to see is that you know, ideas and worldviews and ideologies, these are very trendy things. Had you been born uh, 100 years earlier or 500 years earlier, you likely would frame life very differently. But Luther makes a claim, and it, it is a claim that the church has always made. It's a claim that Jesus has made, and that is that God has broken in to time and space, and that there is a way forward. And Part of the reason the Reformation is so critical is because it, it helps us see how hard it is for us to hold on to the heart of the message that, that God proclaims. And, and that has to deal with the radical, scandalous nature of his love extended to us without us earning it. So let me just tell you about my own experience with grace, because I've moved through a handful of um, understandings. When I was little, you know, I, I didn't understand grace. If you asked me what it meant, I, I wouldn't have known, and I wouldn't have cared that I didn't know. And then there was probably a period where if you'd asked me what grace was, I would have said, yeah, that's what we say uh, at Thanksgiving uh, before we eat. Uh, and then there, was, then there was when it began to come into focus. In my first experience, and I, I remember the illustration that was used, uh, I had walked away from the church, and I am in a conversation with some friends who are claiming a radical transformation in their life, and they're in love with Jesus, and they're very different than who I knew them to be, and they talk about grace, and they use the illustration of uh, driving home and getting a speeding ticket. If you're driving home, and you're speeding, and the police officer catches you, then justice would be getting a ticket, okay? Mercy would be getting a warning. Grace would be getting a $100 bill from the police officer who says, even though you're guilty, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of your, of your penalty, and I'm going to give you more than that. Now, this is crazy talk. And again, most people don't get it. Last week, I, I had a chance to visit with a friend who uh, moves in interesting circles. And uh, a number of years ago, he was asked to uh, lead a devotion for Bono before a U2 concert and to reflect on grace. One of the songs for U2 is about grace. And he wanted, to, he wanted my friend to talk about grace. And there were five couples there. One of them was David Brooks and his wife. And he said, after he spoke about grace, Brooks came up to him and said, I have nothing in my life or in anything I can possibly see in my past that suggests grace. 
Nothing. I don't know what you're talking about. I have no experience of that. Right? It is a radical idea. So I sort of thought I got it. And then I had a whole other dose of it when I went to Trinity. And, and one of the things that I got exposed to was, uh, was the debate, the historical debate that went on between uh, Pelagius and Augustine. And uh, when the Roman Empire fell, so back, all the way back in the second era, right? So Alaric the Hun, all the Vandals and Goths and everybody is crashing in on Rome. The good guys fled. And one of the guys that fled was a, was a religious man by the name of Pelagius. And he fled down to northern Africa. And he ends up... In the, in the neighborhood of Augustine, the great Saint Augustine who writes confessions and city of God and all of this. And he listens to Augustine preach for a while, a series of months. And then he goes to Augustine and he says, you know, <laughs> you, you gotta turn up the heat here. You got all these people that are being lazy. You gotta tell them they better get their act together. They need to pray more. They need to give more. They need to serve more. They need to do all these things or they're not right with God. And Augustine said, um, no, you misunderstand grace. And this will lead to a big tumultuous uh, back and forth. They're writing books back and forth. Augustine writes a bunch of books called Against Pelagius. And, and basically, I came to understand at that time that I was a semi-Pelagian and a Pharisee. Right? Because I thought I was saved by grace and I believed that I was a Christ follower, but I sort of, I sort of thought, you know, it does depend on me just a little bit. As much as I would never say that, it is sort of what I think. So, so Pelagius' argument would be, here's man, here's God, big gulp. Pelagius would say, you need to build the bridge to God by being religious, by giving your money away, by saying prayers, by doing all these things, good things. You need to earn your way. You need to get back to God. The church was very clear. Augustine was very clear. Everybody was very clear. No, Pelagius, that is not the gospel. So then his followers sort of regrouped and they came up with what we call semi-Pelagianism, which is, okay, you need to do good things. You need to be kind and, and you need to not do bad things and you need to go to church and read your Bible and you build a bridge partway and then God is going to make up the difference. And that's semi-Pelagianism. And that also was renounced as not being the gospel. The gospel is not, for God so loved the world that if you try hard enough, he'll make up the difference. Right? The gospel is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Right? We are saved, Paul writes in Ephesians 2, by grace through faith, not of ourselves, it is a gift of God. It's not works. We don't contribute. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is our sin. <laughs> Everything else is a work of God. And so this is, this is the, such an important and critical point. I'm pretty persuaded that most people are semi-Pelagians that I talk to. And one of the hardest jobs I have is to say, you know what? You do want to do the right thing. 
you do want to be kind and you want to care for others and you want to serve and you want to take care of the under-resourced, those are all good things to do. But we do those because of God's love, not in an effort to earn God's favor. It's not faith plus works equals salvation. It's faith equals salvation plus works. When we come to faith, God begins to change us. And we find that we become more generous and peaceful and loving. And we want to do the things. And, and we do those things, whether they're hard or not, because they're the right things to do. And we, we marvel at what God has done for us. So I would say to you, uh, don't be a semi-Pelagian. Uh, understand the radical nature of God's love. If, if you're a parent, maybe this will help. Can you imagine one of your children coming up to you and saying, uh, I did this so that you would love me more. And you would say, that's, that's, just not, that's not possible. That's not the way this works. I can't love you more because you do these things. Now, if you're, if you're being an idiot and a jerk, it's going to break my heart. And we may have tension. <laughs> but, but my love for you is not based on your performing, right? It is a free gift. And so that is the gospel, that God does everything that needs to be done. And it, it becomes a turning point in church history because it's so easy to forget that. <laughs> It's so easy to think, yes, 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 God did it all, but he's going to like me more if I do this. And we've got to break that and to say, no, that's, that's not grace. We are saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. That's what Luther was fighting over, that and some other things. But that's sort of the pinnacle, that's the, the bullseye of the, of the Protestant Reformation. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for uh, the good news that we get to lean into and uh, relax into, marvel at, that uh, you know us better than we know ourselves. You know all our faults, all our sin, all the darkness, and you love us. We are more broken than we possibly dare to admit to ourselves, but your love is, is greater than we possibly would uh, dare believe. We thank you for preserving, protecting uh, the, the centrality of the gospel and the work of Christ. We pray that we would be good stewards of that message, that we would embrace it, that it would shape the way we live and think, it would shape the church. We would proclaim it. We would fight for it. We would, we would announce it. We would share this good news that God will meet you where you are. And I pray today, Heavenly Father, for those that may still think this news is too good, I pray that you will increasingly uh, reveal yourself to them. And if you are in that camp, by the way, if that describes you, I would encourage you to put your weight down on Jesus. You will not ever find a better person or a better offer than you're going to get from Jesus. So thank you, Father, for grace. Thank you for your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.